I want to start, I want to do two things really. I want to talk about a very specific issue and then I want to talk about one very general issue. So the specific issue is, was, this is the thing that was very prompted by discussion last night over dinner, um, which is to talk about this overgeneral memory effect and think about how that ties in with some of the stuff coming out of the marshmallow test and then say something about some general capacities that you might think a well-functioning agent should have that might be compromised in some of the, the cases we've been thinking about. So I want to start with that, and then I want to talk more generally about the input of sort of more higher-level cognitive beliefs into these sorts of processes, because I think most of what we've been talking about has been very low-level stuff, probably working with basically Pavlovian or um, at least model-free systems for, for, for doing the learning. So, so I'll come on to that, that stuff later. Let me first talk about the specific thing. So the overgeneral memory effect, I, I didn't know anything about this until I, I read your article and then some of the other stuff before, before coming here. And I found this very interesting. And so, you know, just to remind people of, of the effects, so the children who have suffered abuse or, or an aversive early, early environment seem to lose their specific memories. They can remember very general things. They can remember that, you know, they lived in London at such and such a time and um, they went to school on certain days and went to church on Sundays and whatever, but they can't remember specific happenings. Now, a priori, you might think that was surprising because you can see why they might want to censor memory of the specific abuse, but you might well think antecedently that they would want to hang on to specific memories of good things, right? I mean, that seems like it would be the, 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 the favorite way out. And so I was wondering why this was, and I, I had a hypothesis, and we, I was talking with Eamon last night, and his hypothesis was pretty much the same, namely, look, if you could do that, that would be great. But there's only a certain amount of repression and control over our own memories we can, we can manage. And once you're in the business of thinking about the good things, once you're in there at that level of detail, the thought about the good things will very naturally take you to the thought about the bad things, right? This good thing happened to me, and oh yeah, but it was followed by that awful thing, right? So the only way you can succeed in repressing the bad memories is by a more global strategy. You just cut out a whole level of memory. Probably, I, I mean, I, I wasn't clear from the articles, but, but Eamon was suggesting this is probably an access issue, not a... Um, actual memory issues, so the memory's probably there, it's just that you are blocking your access to those memories. Okay, so that's very interesting. Um, you know, it's a sort of floodgate phenomenon, right? Once you've opened them, then all this other stuff comes through. So if you open them to the good, the, the, the bad comes in too. But that made me think about the delayed gratification um, experiments and, and Michelle's work, which is something I've, I've done quite a lot of thinking about. Um, so, um, as he mentioned that, that uh, in some cases this may be adaptive. Yeah, right, it, it may well be adaptive, right? If you live in an environment where waiting, delaying gratification is the worst thing you can do because someone else will come and steal the goods in the meanwhile. You don't want to get into that. Um, but I take it in many environments outside that, it is adaptive to be able to delay gratification. And one of the interesting issues is what the mechanism is that the kids use to do that. Um, so we were talking about this a little bit in the last, in the last discussion. Um, what um, Michelle found was that um, it's basically a distraction strategy 
which children are using that's effective. So one of the, one of the um, studies he did that I thought was very telling was split the kids up into four groups, one of whom could see the reward for waiting, one of whom could see the reward for succumbing, one of whom could see neither, and one of whom could see both. And his prediction was that seeing the reward for waiting would be more likely to make you wait, and seeing the reward for succumbing would be more likely to make you succumb. In fact, there was no difference between anyone who could see anything. The only difference was with the group who couldn't see anything. Right? So if you can't see anything, you're more likely to wait. But as soon as you can see something, you're more likely to succumb. Now, why is that? Well, I think the explanation for that is a very similar explanation to the kind of thing we're talking about in the overgeneralization memory effect. Namely, once you start opening the question as to whether or not you should succumb, you'll give yourself reasons for succumbing. And there was some nice follow-up studies, and a very nice one by Carnival Miller, looking at this, looking at the um, evaluation that the kids give of the marshmallows over time. So if you um, split them into two groups, one group you ask at the beginning how they rate the preferred thing against the less preferred thing. Right, it's not good doing all this with marshmallows because you know, it's marshmallows all the way down and it's hard to distinguish. So you do marshmallows and gum, and you say, you know, which do you prefer? And they say marshmallows, and you say, right, you can have the gum. Um, but if you wait, you can have the marshmallow. Could you tell me how you rank these two on a scale of 1 to 10? And what you find is that the group who's asked to rank them at the beginning ranks the marshmallow, if that's the preferred one, with a large gap between that and the second best. If you go in after 10 minutes, and 10 minutes is about the point when the kids start succumbing, that gap has shrunk to pretty much nothing. So it looks as though what happens is that they reevaluate the goods under the pressure of waiting. Um, and that's why, or at least that's my hypothesis, as to why it is that opening the question is a bad thing to do, because under the pressure of waiting, you tend to change your evaluation of how good the thing is. So if you then open the question, you behave on the basis of the new evaluation, and the new evaluation leads you to succumb. There are a number of studies that, that follow up on that, especially some from Peter Golvitz, which I think are very telling. For instance, he has a very nice one with dieters. So you give them an implementation intention in order to um, block their eating the foods they don't really want. So, for instance, when they pass the dessert part of the cafe, they say to themselves, I don't have dessert, and they pass on. Or when they have leftovers after a meal, they say to themselves, I put the leftovers in a Tupperware and put them in the fridge. And um, with those kind of implementation intentions, they do very well. They do much better than a group that just does their best not to eat too much. Right? But if you get a third group to add to that mental recital of the implementation intention a because clause, so they say, you know, I put them in the fridge because if I were to eat them up, um, I'd get fat or whatever, that completely undoes the efficacy of the implementation intention. Right? It takes it back to the control group level. Now, why is that? I think what happens there is that they tell themselves a story as to why it's fine to eat the chocolate cake this time, right? It's been a hard day, and one bit of chocolate cake doesn't make much difference, and the fridge is already full of leftovers in little plastic boxes, and this looks nice, and would cheer me up, and whatever. It's very easy to tell a story like that, and you tell that story each time, 
And the result of telling that story each time is that you end up at the level of the people who didn't have the, didn't have the intention there, the resolution there in the first place. Okay, so that's, that's kind of interesting. I take it, though, that a successful strategy here shouldn't be absolute, right? You could imagine someone who locked themselves in so that once they've decided not to have dessert, they would never have dessert under any circumstances. Right? That would be akin to the marshmallow kid who's still sitting there after five hours waiting for the two marshmallows to come, right? That's not a good strategy. What you want to have is a strategy which has sufficient flexibility that it can recognize an exceptional case. So what you want is to have the standard cases such that you cope with them by having an inflexible response. But you have the flexibility to amend that inflexible response in the extraordinary case. Okay, this, this means you need obviously some kind of meta strategy, a strategy on those strategies. Now we've explored, I think there's a fair bit now work exploring meta strategies where you're wondering whether it's worth exploring or exploiting at this point, say, or whether it's worth putting new resources in to do some more calculations. This is a subtly different one, right? Because the risk of all these things is that if you put in a strategy which itself involves thinking about the stuff, then that will ipso facto undermine the very thing you're trying to avoid doing. So if you start thinking, ah, oh, you know, this is an exceptional, this may be an exceptional case. Is this an exceptional case? And you have to think that about every case. Then you're already thinking about the cases, and that was exactly the thing you didn't want to do. So my suspicion here is that for these kind of things to work in a subject who is relatively well attuned to their circumstance, they will have to be in the position that the secondary system, which is the one that decides whether they stick with the normal resolution or reopen the question, itself must be driven in a way that isn't contaminating, isn't activating the first system. This is now where I'm really into the speculative stuff, so, so I'm going to get told off in a minute. But um, you may... So one, one thing I think is very interesting, thinking about the way these subcortical systems work, is that it may be that using those subcortical systems exactly gives you the ability to run a strategy like this, right? That is, you know... I mean, think about this with, with, with moral cases. I think it's exactly analogous. So um, in general, we tell kids that if they've made a promise, they've got to keep it. Right? But even six-year-old kids, when you ask them, should you keep the promise if something dreadful were to happen as a result of keeping the promise, they're on to the idea that if something dreadful is going to happen, keeping the promise is, is not something they ought to do. Well, how do you manage to do that without opening the question as to whether you should keep the promise under every circumstance? Because if you always open the question, then I think you're very often going to tell yourself a story about why it's really important for you to look after yourself and not keep the promise this time. Right, you're going to be much too vulnerable to breaking promises. But if what happens is that it's a subcortical system which alerts you to the fact this is an extraordinary situation, someone's going to get really badly hurt. And that sets off a reaction which then gets more cognitively processed. Then you can see how you could manage to keep those two systems separate. So, you know, this is a kind of just-so story um, about why actually that division of labor between cortical and subcortical might be adaptive. And also, uh, you know, an interesting question about 
what it is when we're trying to give the subjects the right kind of tuning we're trying to give. And I think this comes back to, to an issue that, that Nick mentioned earlier, namely that it's, it's very easy to think that we're just trying to get subjects so that they're at the ideal balance. And there's no such thing as the ideal balance. There's a balance which is good for a given environment. And um, that's exactly what's happening here, I think, with most, most of these strength of will cases. You are trying to get that balance between when you open the question up and when you stick with the prior evolution that you have. And there's no general answer to that. There's a case of fine-tuning to certain circumstances. Hence, I, I was very much in agreement with Nick when he was saying, you, you know, if you're thinking of interventions here, you've got to be careful that you're not giving an intervention which actually gives an inappropriate balance rather than getting one that's appropriate for the, for the subject and the environment they find themselves in. Okay, that was the first bit. That was the, the kind of specific bit. Um, second thing, more general. This is really a question for, 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 for Essie and, and the rest of you lot. Um, most of the work that you've been talking about, as I was saying, involves the creation of beliefs and um, behavioral tendencies and so on that are probably accumulated at a fairly low level, right? They're not highly cognitively um, based. So they are, you know, behaviors that come as a result of trying things out and, and going on and so on. So many of these are going to be model free. I mean, it's not that you've got a theory of how the world works and as a result of having that high level, very cognitive theory, you then change your behaviors. It's rather that you're starting to model behaviors as a result of interacting with the world and then you go on to, to change those behaviors as a result of the, the interactions and the feedback that you get. Um, and, and as you provided a little bit of sort of reason for being skeptical about the higher level cognitive stuff when you talked about cognitive behavioral therapy right at the beginning, right? That, um, you know, this was seen to be very effective, and then as we've got more studies in, especially more long-term studies and studies with, with a large population, it's turning out it's not so good, and that actually just convincing people of the truth of, of things at a highly cognitive level very often doesn't have a massive impact on their, on their behavior and so on. I think that point is very well taken. So it certainly seems that if you're trying to correct a well-established situation, it's very hard to do it by coming in at the end and trying to change an avert belief. But I'm wondering about how important the very cognitive avert beliefs are at the beginning of the process and whether a change of belief, of belief early on can give rise to a change in behavior later on. In particular, I'm wondering whether this can explain the um, multi-finality, which is a term I didn't know before, um, but the extent to which people converge on a single pathology, even though they might be coming from very different starting points. Um, I think of this as sort of one-many approach, so I'm afraid I will forget the word um, multi-finality, and I will say one-many and many-one to distinguish them. These two, this, you know, a logic background rather than a pathology background, I'm afraid. Um, and this, the, the, the evidence here that I'm sort of struck by, and I really have no idea whether it's any good or not, is the anthropological and historical evidence on the ways that the presentation of mental illness has changed. Now, you know, I, 
I really never know whether you should believe some of the things that anthropologists tell you. I remember an anthropologist saying to me once that uh, it used to be the case that anthropology made the exotic familiar, and now they're in the business of making the familiar exotic. And that seems like a striking thing to be doing, but it's not a good idea if the familiar actually isn't exotic, and they may be in an attempt to over-exoticize the, the familiar. But if you look at the um, historical and anthropological evidence on mental illness, and I'm not now so much talking about sort of antisocial behaviors, but thinking about other, other diseases that are more marked, they do look to be very, very culturally and historically conditioned. So let me just mention a few. I'm sure people know much more about this than I do, but uh, one that I found very striking was the peculiar walking gait that people got as a result of shell shock in the First World War. Right? So people would have this gait. It never presented in any other theatre of war, and then there's a very nice study that shows that it seemed to start somewhere in Belgium and radiated out over the weeks as other patients saw the, and imitated the behavior. Now, of course, the shell shock was a genuine thing. Quite what the etiology of it was is still contested. But that particular manifestation was something that was looked to be learned, right? They were imitating it from other people. And likewise, you look at the, some of these other studies. So the, there's this, this work on uh, eating disorders in Hong Kong, where you know, it doesn't look as though anything that looks really look much like anorexia was presenting in Hong Kong, although there were, there were some other food eating disorders, but they didn't look like classic Western anorexia until the school started warning the kids about anorexia, and then it conformed better. Now, I don't know how good that research is, but the, the, uh, the articles are at least striking. Um, similarly, depression in Japan, I think this, this is better established. The um, presentation of depression in Japan is very different to the presentation in the West, and it's become much closer to it, especially as pharmaceutical companies have tried to market their antidepressives in ways that they want them to meet the diagnostic criteria for, 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 um, for delivery. Um, more locally, you know, the, the, the actually coming back to the UK, so I was in MIT for, for, for 10 years and came back to the UK three years ago. Um, at MIT, we had real problems with suicide. Um, there were students committing suicide regularly every year. And, and you were saying you have similar problems in, uh, in, uh, in Penn. Um, in Cambridge, at least to my knowledge, we don't have that. We do have way, way higher levels of depression than we had when I was an undergraduate and then when I was first a graduate student in, in, uh, in Oxford. Now, maybe the environment has changed radically, but certainly a lot of the presentation of those illnesses has changed in ways which are very surprising. So anyone who's got teenage kids at the moment knows that all the schools, again, especially in, in, in the Boston area, um, from, from anecdotal knowledge, are concerned about cutting because kids are cutting themselves. Again, I, I went through school without knowing anybody who ever cut themselves, whereas now all the kids know many kids who are cutting, and it's, it's you know, something approaching a rite of passage, I think, for, for, for some of these children. It's, 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 it's not a good thing. Um, anyway, these seem like behaviours that are 
manifesting as a result of some rather high-level cognitive input. And you might think, well, you know, so what? It just, they just, it's the same kind of underlying issue, but it's presenting rather differently. But of course, if the presentation is suicide, then I don't think we can take that sort of attitude to it. I mean, the way in which it presents actually is really, really important. Likewise, if it's anorexia, I mean, anorexia is a much, much more dangerous um, condition. Actually, as far as I understand it, the, of all the um, psychological illnesses, the, the most dangerous in, in the sense that you're most likely to die if you're diagnosed with anorexia than anything else, I think, I was told by a psychiatrist at one point. Um, but if that, you know, is, is a, to some extent, learned behavior, um, different to the hysteria which perhaps it would have been presenting us in the 19th century, then, of course, that, that matters massively. So, th so this is just a question, really, it's, and it's a question I would genuinely like to know more, know the answer to, as to how important you think those kinds of high-level cognitive inputs are and quite how they fit into the picture which has been so interestingly painted over the last couple of days. All right, at that point, I will stop.